So in the Middle Ages, uh, throughout Europe, <laughs> overzealous priests in the Catholic Church were so afraid of Jewish thought that between 1239 and 1319, they would gather up every Jewish book they could find and burn it. That way, they figured Jews could uh, Jews uh, uh, who couldn't be without their books would ultimately disappear. Um, it didn't work. Now, I revisited that history recently this past summer uh, when it became clear that uh, uh, across the country, school districts were banning books uh, that children were not allowed to read. The list now is about 890 volumes. The reasons were specious, of course. Somehow these school boards felt that these books would cause immeasurable harm to children. I keyed in on one of those books and discovered that instead of causing harm, that book would actually make a child more sensitive and well-rounded, even though it's a strange choice of book. But the book is one that we all read in high school, The Lord of the Flies. How many of you read it? Oh, yeah. Ever, look at that. Everybody. Yeah, you guys seem pretty well-rounded to me. I remember reading it. I remember how deeply it affected me. In fact, we were conditioned after reading that book to believe that in the midst of a crisis of survival, it would be everyone for themselves and themselves only. And yet, that's only partially true part of the time. Because at the same time that I revisited The Lord of the Flies, I also revisited a counterpoint to Lord of the Flies, which was called Humankind, A Hopeful History. And what I found in there was a still small voice that affirmed what Jews have always believed, namely that the soul of each of us is not intrinsically evil, but rather intrinsically good. So without trying to be the Cliff's Notes version of Lord of the Flies, I'll remind you what happened, especially if you don't remember grade nine English. It was written by William Golding, who at that time in his life was extraordinarily angry and in an interview said to the interviewer, I like to hurt people. Golding explored the problem of good and evil, and so he fictionalized this group of English schoolboys in a plane that crashed on a desert island. And quickly, the boys created a leadership structure of sorts and assigned groups to build shelters, find food, maintain a fire to signal passing ships, as well as to cook and stay warm. So far... At the beginning chapters of the book, their dilemma brought forth constructive and meaningful ideas, but frustration lay just below the surface. The first sign of trouble was that they spent more time playing in the ocean than, playing, than paying attention to the, the fire. It gets, uh, the, the, the fire gets out of control, and it burns the adjacent forest, actually killing one of their group. And then the anger from that forms like a tsunami 
affecting every one of the boys. They start fighting with each other for limited resources. And before long, three of the children are dead. And as the book ends, they and we are left to wonder how they lived the rest of their lives filled with the knowledge that they turned into barbarians in such a short time. After reading that book, I presume most people would nod in agreement about how easy it is for somebody to turn into a wild animal. And these days we hear stories like this after every disaster. Remember Hurricane Katrina? Reports of rape and robbery for, were everywhere. And we totally bought into the Lord of the Flies narrative, and we have been nodding ever since. And we're doing it now because in Florida, the first thing that the sheriff's saying is you loot, we shoot. What? More about that later. But there was another story that came out about this time. And it's a true story. Those of you who remember 1965, which unfortunately I do, might recall the story of the six young teenage boys who ran away from school on the Pacific island of Tonga, and they fled accidentally 500 miles in open sea to one of the Fijian islands. Not a great idea, but then again, it was the Tonganese version of stealing dad's car for a joyride. But as you know, if you remember the story, it was a terrible idea. After a very short time, very far from shore, the boat became impossible to steer. There was no food. There was no water. They had no idea where they were. And worse, they had no idea the direction they were headed. Only by sheer luck did they find a small island right out of the movie Castaway, and they managed to land there. This was Lord of the Flies in the making, but it didn't work out that way, to say the least. Instead, these boys created their own little tzibor, a little community of mutual support and caring. Of course, there were arguments, but they overcame those heated moments by having timeouts and by de-escalating heated situations. Each day began and ended with singing and with prayer. For 15 months, this went on until they were all rescued. And the captain of the ship approached and figured that since these boys had no clothes on and their hair was halfway to their waist, he had chanced upon an isolated tribe which appeared <laughs> vicious. And yet the captain, whose name, by the way, was Peter Warner, was amazed to hear them speak and knew that this was no isolated tribe. He listened to their story, and in his captain log, he wrote this. These amazing boys who had set up a small commune with a food garden, hollowed out tree trunks to store rainwater, a gymnasium with curious weights, a badminton court, chicken pens, and a permanent fire. This was no Lord of the Flies moment. This was a moment of revelation. At least it should be. And yet, and yet we easily forget this story and remember the story of the Lord of the Flies. 
The novel of evil, that we remember. The true story of goodness, we forget. We are conditioned to think that we are one small step away from pure evil and that it only takes a small trigger to release it. For example, the story of Cain and Abel ends with the really curious phrase, sin couches at the door, its urge is towards you. And then there's the story of Noah, which has God saying after the flood, never again will I doom the earth because of man, since the inclinations of man are evil from his youth. And yet Judaism and Jewish tradition reject the idea that everything and everyone is inclined to evil all the time. The inclinations of each of us can bend toward the evil, but it doesn't have to. Sin's urge may crouch at the door, but we can walk right on by or we can pick it up. To our sages, evil is real, for sure. But just because something is real is not the way we ought to define ourselves. Good is just as real. And though there are people whose evil is manifest daily and whose yetzer ahara, their evil impulse, is what defines them more than anything else, Judaism stressed and affirmed that the yetzer hatov, the inclination toward the good, is much more powerful. True, evil deeds and evil people get all of the press. But the real world and the goodness in it far exceeds the evil in it. We love to see the drama of evil the same way we love to slow down and see a car wreck. It's almost like we're trying to affirm that people are evil by nature. And as a colleague of mine once pointed out, we love it so much, we manufacture it. Jerry Springer made a career out of pointing out immorality. And the more violent it turned out, it was the, the higher his ratings. And yet, and yet it doesn't always work that way. Do you remember the TV show Survivor? Remember that? Okay. The show was based on the book, The Lord of the Flies. I don't know if you knew that. The, 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 the producer saw the success of the reality show uh, uh, to compete with MTV's uh, The Real World. And he realized, the producer realized, that he could play to the voyeuristic side of people wanting nothing more than to watch people turn on each other. Unfortunately, the producers of Survivor ran into a problem because people on the island started to work together. They started to get along. In fact, when people embrace their Yetzer Hatov, their good impulse, they literally killed the show because the con contestants realized that helping each other build a meaningful outcome far outweighed the viciousness to appear victorious, but at the same time isolated, alone, and ashamed. And that's why Survivor is not on TV anymore. Or consider the story that emerged from the ruins of New Orleans after Katrina. Told you I'd get back to it. After the storm, newspapers were filled with accounts of rapes and shootings in New Orleans. And you all remember the pictures from inside the Superdome, which served as the city's largest storm shelter. 
Some 25,000 people were packed together. There was no electricity, no water. Journalists reported that two infants' throats had been slit. A seven-year-old girl had been raped and murdered, and sewage flowed freely from the bathrooms. Everyone believed it. Why? Because it fit into their Lord of the Flies idea that people aren't human. The only problem with it is that it didn't happen. Were there people taking advantage of the situation? Yes. There is no denial that the, there, there was a presence of evil, of an evil inclination in some people to act at the, as, as a scourge. And yet at the same time, we discovered that what sounded like gunfire had been popping relief valves on gas canisters. In the Superdome, a total of six people died. Four died of natural causes. One died of an overdose. One died by suicide. Even the police chief who bought into the Lord of the Flies in the Superdome was forced to concede that he could not point out to a single officially reported rape or murder in the Superdome. To quote his report, there had been looting, but almost entirely by groups that had teamed up to survive. Hundreds of civilians formed rescue squads, in some cases banding together with police, looking for food, clothing, and medicine to provide the basic necessities to the survivors of the storm. A veritable armada of boats as far away as Texas came to save people from the rising waters. Katrina, in short, didn't see New Orleans overrun with self-interest and anarchy. Rather, the city was inundated with courage and charity. Judaism somehow always knew that people were attracted to the basest stories of what people are ca capable of. That's why Yom Kippur is fundamentally a positive day, not just a day of self-debasement. We see this in our liturgy that affirms who and what we are and what we as Jews believe. Ours is not the liturgy of the inbred and immovable sin, but rather, rather the liturgy of quiet affirmation of the worth of our souls. Everyone is familiar with the Unatana Tokev prayer, even if they don't know what it's, uh, what, it, what it's called. When I was in rabbinic school, our professor warned us that this is the part of the service where people pass out. I, I always thought it was after the sermon. Happily, that has not happened to anyone in any congregation I've served, but apparently it happens. Who shall live and who shall die? Who by fire and who by water? And so forth. That's pretty direct language, and it sometimes has the effect of shaking somebody to the core. But that's only the middle of the poem. It's the beginning of the poem that is far more comforting, where we read, a great shofar is sounded, a still small voice is heard, and the angels are alarmed, pangs of fear and trembling states seize them. Hear the words, the great shofar is sounded, and the earth trembles. It is loud. It shakes us to the bones. But even so, the angels just sit there. They are not impressed with the drama. It was. It's only after a still, small voice does the poem tell us that the angels are aroused. 
That still small voice evokes the memory of the biblical story of Elijah, who stood alone on the mountain looking for God. Suddenly, when the Bible tells us there was a great and strong wind, it tore through the mountain, it broke the rocks in pieces, but God was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but God was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but God was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a still, small voice. And when Elijah heard that, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and behold, God's voice came to him. As has been noted by so many, but it bears repeating, God is not in the flood. God is not in the fires, not in the hurricane, not in the moments of cataclysmic havoc when the world trembles. God is in the spaces. God is in the stillness. The Midrash asks, how come the Ten Commandments begins with the letter Aleph, as in Anochi? I am the Lord your God. And it answers because the Aleph is silent. And in order to pronounce it, you must inhale inspire, make a conscious effort to bring God in. And the only way to do that is to be in a literal quiet place. In the quiet response that often goes unnoticed, God is the good that is the true foundation. And it is that good and away from the crowd that threatens God's wrath that we find a God worthy in our worship and praise. And so it begs the question, if people are intrinsically good, why do we, all of us, hang on to the Lord of the Flies picture of people who are inherently evil? The answer, I think, is pure physics. Loud things get our attention. But the loud noises, those with the loud mouths, won't open our hearts and inspire us to action. Only the still, small voice we hear in the depths of our being can do that. And those are the people we ought to follow, <clears throat> that we ought to follow, for they bring out the best in us. I had a, a small taste of this this summer, <clears throat> where once again, uh, I volunteered uh, at grief camp uh, uh, for a weekend uh, for children who have suffered an immediate loss most often a parent or a sibling. My cabin uh, had seven or eight boys. They were all 10 or 11 years old. And despite some of, uh, despite the fact that I was the oldest bunk buddy at camp uh, and my kids started calling me grandpa, which they meant affectionately, of course, and I took it as such, a special bond of understanding and accepting their grief with grief was key to making the weekend something meaningful. Now, on Saturday night, camp goes from Friday to Sunday. So on Saturday night, the grief work culminates in what is called the luminaria ceremony, where each child at camp has made a beautiful candle lantern with the name or pictures of their loved ones that come from their heart. They decorate it. The candle is placed in this jar the jar is set on a wooden floating thing, and the jar is set afloat on the lake as a symbolic goodbye to their loved one, whom the kids, more often than not, never really had an opportunity to say goodbye to. Each child would go to the waterfront, and each would enter the dock one at a time, where one of the grief chiefs was there 
embracing and letting each child take as much time as they needed to say goodbye. Now, as always, there were lots of tears. And you would think that the kids would be filled with sorrow and grief after the ceremony and that they would just want to go back to the bunk and curl up, disappearing for the rest of the night. But that is the exact opposite of what happened. We walked back to our cabin, and one of the kids uh, in my cabin, whose sister died at 21 years old and who needed the human touch, he sought, uh, uh, he grabbed my hand, he held my hand, and he commented how amazing the stars looked that night. And they did, indeed. The Milky Way was fully visible in its silent glory, and every constellation visible to the eye was laid out in perfect splendor. The heavens were sending me a message. And I asked him and the other kids in my cabin if they wanted to go into the field, lie on the grass, and do some stargazing. After the emotions of the luminaries in the lake, they wanted to see the luminaries in the sky. And in a moment, we were lying on the cold, wet grass and loving it, staring straight up. Kids, being kids, never stopped asking questions to me about space, about stars, the size of the universe. You know, the kind of questions that I like to answer. And after a very short, silent moment, the grieving child from Brooklyn who took my hand in his and who had never seen the stars before said to me, I can't believe how beautiful this is. I've never seen the sky. Being from Brooklyn. I didn't want to talk away his moment of revelation. But one of the other kids who was grieving the death of his father knew exactly what to say. And he responded in the most loving voice. He said, now it's the time for you to start looking up. I love that story. It's now the time of the year for us to start looking up. There is so much noise taking our, uh, our attention away from the truly important things, and the light is, an, uh, is, is too often a burning field instead of a still, small light that brightens our soul and the souls of others. This day tells us that it is our decision to listen for that quiet voice, and see the penetrating light of goodness that cannot be heard but can only be seen. That's the light in us all. It is the silent light, the silence of each of our hearts that can be inclined for the good. The noise is there, but wisdom, goodness, and love is sometimes missing too much. Today gives us a different story. It tells us to begin a different story. This is a story not of Lord of the Flies, which exploits our worst impulses. Rather, we learn the story, we learn the story of friendship and loyalty and dedication and how better each of us can be when we rely on each other, when we lean on each other, when we help one another to see the world around us is a world of light. And when we take a moment to share our light with others. In the words of another colleague, it is time to tell the story that emerges when we stop to hear that still small voice of goodness that exists around us. If we just open our ears and be willing to believe in the possibility. 
At the beginning of Alex Haley's novel, Roots, Kunta Kinte, the main character, and Alex Haley's ancestor, was lying in the dirt floor of his slave cabin in a southern plantation. The horrors of the slave ship, the humiliation of the auction block, all obliterated any memory of his native land. But that night something happened as Kunta Kinte heard a woman singing, a song now strange to him, but somehow irresistible. It was a song from Africa. It awoke in him a long-suppressed memory in his deepest soul. Kunta Kinte once remembered that he had a home. He remembered who he was, and he wept. He wept in wonder, and he wept in joy. This day, Yom Kippur, the song that should stir, stir in us is a song of our basic worth, our basic goodness, the strength each of us has to listen to a voice so much bigger than we are, so much quieter. It is the voice that tells us that each of us has a home in God, that we have a home in this synagogue, that we have a home in each other, that we have a home in our Jewish faith, that we have a home in this world, and that that home can arouse in us a new direction, a new direction where the shofar blows softly, but awakens us to life where each of us is an affirmation of the goodness of our souls. The time to read Lord of the Rings has come in Texas and Louisiana and Oklahoma and Kansas. The time to remember that that is sometimes what people do, but not what people are, is the real lesson we should be learning. Shana Tova and Gamar Khatima Tova.